This morning I searched on Google one simple name. I put Jesus into Google, interested to see what might result, how many results would come up. I learned a couple things in watching that for a couple hours this morning. The numbers float. In the two hours I watched it, it went between 761 million and 757 million mentions of Jesus in Google. Three quarters of a billion articles related to Jesus. And the first few results I thought were interesting. They had pictures attached to them, which were always eye-catching, and people who want their stuff read always know to make it visual. The span of reactions to Jesus was stunning. The first article was a amateurish, and I don't mean that in an insulting way, just a non-scholarly stream of thoughts arguing the point that Jesus never existed at all, that there is no historical figure named Jesus, that the whole story, His very person, is a mythical construct. All the way over to very scholarly defenses, digging deep into ancient history and archaeology and updates on things that scholars and historians and archaeologists have been finding up until last year, and everything in the middle. I didn't take a lot of time, I just wanted to see what the most disruptive, pervasive technology in our day called Google might say about Jesus. Well, there's three quarters of a billion responses. Jesus creates reactions. He always has. He always will. He did in His time as well. In our day, you can find Jesus in all kinds of different situations. His name is often used as a swear word or as an exclamation. South Park has created a cartoonish Jesus and mocked Him pretty relentlessly along with other religious figures, with the admission sometimes by entertainers that they more readily ridicule Christians because they know genuine Christians won't fight back. All kinds of things said about Jesus. It's an interesting thing to think about at Christmas because He's the point. And all of these reactions, that hasn't started today. Technology like Google and Twitter have made us, made it possible for us to look into people's thoughts about Jesus literally up to the instant as something about Him as it does about once a year depending on what time in Newsweek decide to do around Easter time or what the Smithsonian article I read this morning has to say about Him, what they decide to do and what they decide to create and hopefully, in their point of view, get viral on the internet. All kinds of reactions, and it's always been that way. We see violent, literally violent reactions to Jesus in the story we're reading here in Matthew chapter 2. Look with me. This is not the story of the birth of Jesus. This is something that happened perhaps a year or more later. Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector who literally one day got up from the tax collection bench and started following Jesus, he alone tells us of this story of Jesus' infancy. Matthew 2 verse 1. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the, I'm sorry, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And already in that single verse, you read a lot of time and distance and culture regarding Jesus. There's all kinds of names that are unfamiliar to people. If you haven't read this and studied this at least a little bit before, we're told his name is Jesus. He's famously born in Bethlehem of Judea, that's the province, in the days of Herod the king. Now, his name may or not be familiar to you 2,000 years later, but believe me, if you lived under Herod's rule in Israel, you knew exactly who Herod was. And like some of the incendiary political figures of our day, he was never very far from your mind. He was the first in a dynastic line of men who used the title Herod. This is Herod the Great, who was called the Great for all kinds of reasons, but primarily because what Herod loved was opulence, and one way that he tried to gain favor and fame with people was lead these massive construction projects. His most famous project was the rebuilt Jewish temple. If you caught a plane and flew for about half a day, you could go to Israel today and see some of the most stunning archaeology in all of Israel are the remains of what Herod the Great built. Here's the bad news. When governments decide to build massive projects, how do they do it? How do they fund it? Taxes. That's never changed. There are some constants in this story. Herod put tax rates on top, of the Israel, uh, on top of the Jewish people that you and I would find absolutely confiscatory. Not only that, he didn't only tax their money, he also leaned heavily on their labor, and a lot of this stuff was built through forced labor. So if you lived under Herod, you knew you were going to get taxed. And you knew one of your boys might be called up, drafted, so to speak, conscripted, to go work for years on one of Herod's great projects. He loved opulence. He was showy. And he was vain. And in his later years, especially as he became ill and demented, he also grew incredibly paranoid. He was a political climber. He was supposedly a Jewish convert, but he was a Gentile by birth, but to curry favor with the Jews, he pretended to follow their religion, all the while trying to be a good friend of Rome, because really he was just a puppet king. And as he grew older and his illness advanced, he became paranoid and murderous. Herod had put to death his sons, at least one wife and many in his inner circle because he was always afraid of the next man up taking his position. He even got into it with the Caesar, causing Caesar Augustus to joke and make a little pun in Greek that he would far rather be Herod's pig than his son, thinking that the pig might escape the knife before one of the boys did. So Matthew knows exactly the time period he's telling us about. The things he's telling us happened in 
after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea under the governance of Herod the king. And in those days, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And we meet the wise men as well, more on them in a minute. The first thing I notice in this story is that Herod is troubled. And as these wise men from the east, whoever they are and wherever they came from, they arrive in Jerusalem saying that as observers of the skies, they've seen a new celestial configuration. There's something new in the sky that catches their attention. And this is all we're told. And because this is the birth of Jesus, we're squarely and without apology back in the realm of the supernatural. But whether through observation or reading, and I think there's good reason to believe that they were familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures and making some deductions that made them make this long journey, they come to Jerusalem asking for the one, they said, has been born King of the Jews. You understand why that phrase and why those questions might have upset Herod? It's hard to see in English, but the way Matthew wrote this in Greek, he wants the reader originally to know what they're asking is, where's the new and legitimate king? Herod climbed into political power. They're asking for the one who has a legitimate right as the king of the Jews. And Herod says, well, wait a second, that's me. He's upset. See, the first reaction that I read in this story and the most memorable reaction to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 is hostility because a new king is on the scene. Herod doesn't want to be dethroned. He loves power. Make no mistake, if you're a Christian, Jesus is and intends to be your boss. Jesus has been crowded down and pushed around down into something like a good friend and a life coach. Too many Christians approach Him as someone who can help when all else fails. Have you ever approached Jesus that way? My pastor used to joke about a family going through medical trouble, and the doctor comes out of surgery and says to the wife, well, it's all, I've done my best. It's all in God's hands now. And she says, oh, no, has it come to that? It's always in God's hands. He always intends to be in charge. I want to read you something from the, ministry, the height of the ministry of Jesus in this same gospel in Matthew chapter 11. In fact, I want you to read it with me. Jesus said this. Read it right off the screen with me. The full-grown Jesus, the one who knows where He's come from and where He's going, the one who has come to preach the kingdom of God and the terms of God on earth, said to anybody who would listen this. This is an invitation to you 2,000 years later. Read with me. Jesus said, "'Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me.'" For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Anytime we read the Bible, we're stepping back into history and culture necessarily. The first sentence is wonderfully inviting. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That sound good to you? And you stop reading right there, you can make Jesus anything you want him to be. He can simply be the one that promises you rest. But he kept explaining what he meant. Look at the next sentence. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, that puts me back in another world where I need to understand what Jesus is talking about. How many of you ever seen a yoke? Yoke generally is just gym slang for a guy who's really done a lot of work in the weight room. You say that a guy is yoked. A yoke is a wooden farming implement used in the ancient world to put two oxen together. Two stubborn, strong, maybe very independent animals were placed together under a yoke to put on the neck of each animal. It would make them, it would force them to walk together. It would make sure that their energy and their strength was directed in the same way. And if they tried to pull away and each go their own separate direction, the yoke would keep them together. Jesus isn't referring to people as oxen in this passage. The scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which you're going to meet a little bit later in this story, they talked about taking up the yoke of the Torah or the law or the teaching of Moses. So if someone was trying to read the Hebrew Scriptures and do what God said, they had taken up the yoke. In other words, they had put themselves under submission. That's what Jesus is working at here. That's the invitation He's making. In His days, the scribes and the Pharisees had laid so much tradition and so much interpretation, whether it was commentary from the rabbis or mystical musings that even to this day are known as Kabbalah in Judaism. There was so much human opinion and human regulation stacked up on top of people that everyone woke up in the morning knowing that they weren't even sure which rabbi to consult, much less how to do everything he said. So the invitation of Jesus is, all of you who are labor and heavy laden under all of those burdens, come to me. Not to new rules, not to new traditions, not to new obligations. You come personally to me, and I personally will give you rest if you do this. You have to take my yoke upon you. You have to learn from me. Jesus is not a, like any other teacher. He's not a religious tyrant. He's not self-interested. On the contrary, he is gentle and lowly in heart. And in coming to him and submitting to him, that's the core idea of the yoke, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not when you come to Jesus that there is no effort, there is no difficulty, there is no challenge in following Him. No. There is effort. There is hard work. 
but it is the hard work of humbling yourself and recognizing that He, in your daily life, in your daily choices, right down to the core of your emotions and your motivations, He's in charge, not you. That's the trouble. So long as we are welcome to accept Jesus on His terms and not our own, practically anybody will say that they follow Him. That's the trouble. I'm being discipled by an older believer who I have a great deal of admiration for, whose name I won't mention simply because I don't know if he would be comfortable with it because he's not that kind of a look-at-me kind of guy. But one of the story, one of the questions he's asking me now is, Bruce, in your reading of Scripture, what has God shown you? What have you learned from the Lord this week? And we talked a little bit about that. He related to me another conversation with another pair of guys that were learning to follow Jesus together. And one guy asked the other the same question, what has God shown you this week? And he said, uh, nothing. Nothing? No. Did you read? No, I didn't. Why didn't you read? And the answer was so honest, it was refreshing. You know what he said? He said, I didn't read because I was, it was, he said something like, I was afraid of what God might say. We're in church. Can we be honest? You ever felt that way? See, if you're truly going to be a disciple of Jesus, He offers rest. He offers strength. He offers rest and peace and rest for the soul in the middle of the strenuous effort of obeying Him. You will have, He says, rest for your soul. But what it takes is submission to Him, to yield control, to say with His Word open, which gives a historically accurate and more importantly, a divinely inspired witness to who God is and what He has done in sending His Son, this is who I am and this is what I want. Bruce, will you follow me? And the answer to that question lived out day to day, that's the nature and that's the truth of discipleship. We live in a very troubling time with more resources available for Christian growth than we've ever had in the history of the world. Did you know that you can, depending on the size of the ministry, you can listen to everything certain pastors have taught for the last 40 years? All the Christian classics, a world of learning, of reflection about God is available at your fingertips through the internet. It's all there, and churches are starting everywhere, and churches in some cases are exhausting themselves in efforts to bring people to Christ, and yet we see very little Christ-likeness. Why is that? Because every time a king is announced, the human heart rebels and is hostile. Because if I get right down to it, if I'm not listening carefully to the voice of God and humbly taking up His yoke and shouldering His easy yoke and His light burden, you know who I put in charge unless I do all that every single time? You know who I really love to be in charge? Me. And you're just like me with this difference. You don't want me to be in charge, you want you to be in charge. <laughs> That's the first reaction to Jesus. It's hostility. The next comes in verse 4. 
Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. That's a huge question. He asked the scholars, the experts, the copyists, the teachers, and the commentators of the Word of God, what does Scripture say? Where is Jesus supposed to be born? Their answer is immediate. They told him, and they quoted, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They quoted the prophet Micah, which is just a few dozen pages to your left in the Bible, but it's 700 years earlier. They knew exactly where to look. Many of those men could have quoted this by heart. In Jesus' day, this was a chief messianic prophecy. Everyone who was looking, like Simeon was, if you remember his story, was looking with anticipation to the Messiah, knew this Scripture, and they had a ready answer. And here's the point. They didn't do anything about it. See, Bethlehem was just five miles from Jerusalem. They could have been there in two or three hours on foot. It's a short walk. And what they did instead was cite Scripture and stay still. I personally believe that these wise men, whatever they are, probably were looking into Scripture. We don't know exactly who they are, but archaeologically speaking, there's good reason to believe that they came from Persia, and they had been exposed to the Hebrew Scriptures and the Hebrew God long, long ago through the ministry of the prophet Daniel. Maybe they read Numbers 24, verse 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Look at this. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, in other words, a symbol of kingly authority, shall rise out of Israel. The wise men can read, the wise men can see, and they're on the move, but the religious leaders of Israel went nowhere. And all the reading of Scripture created was knowledge without obedience. Now, before we're too hard on them, have you ever been there? Have you known exactly what God has said and hasn't moved you to do anything about it? Jesus has a lot He comes up against, doesn't He? Hostility in my heart on the one hand because I want to continue running the show, calling the shots, rationalizing my decisions, continually making decisions that are comfortable for me, and if not flat-out hostile, at least mildly indifferent, so that it doesn't move me to obedience. When I was in high school and my first year of college, I got about as far away from God as a missionary's son can. Now, what I mean by that is my parents, in self-defense, only decided to have one child, and that's... That's a joke, but it's also what they've told me. They've said I didn't have siblings because they got a load of my act and figured that was plenty. <laughs> so I was outnumbered two on one, and they were strict, man. My curfew was embarrassingly early. The expectations for my behavior were very clear. They were also very public. So I couldn't physically get very far away from 
the habits of the Christian life, but in my heart, I got as far away as an 18-year-old kid can. I mean far. And I'm telling you the story as a caution and a warning and maybe to help you, as they say in Mexico, see yourself in this mirror. I was still leading in the youth group. I was still having devotions. I was still one of the, our little youth group, supposedly one of the rising young studs and so indifferent to the Word of God. It made no difference on the inside. I was a scribe and a Pharisee in those years. I could quote it. I could even memorize it. My Bible was filled with notes. It never moved me to obedience. I haven't had too many oh wow experiences, but in those days, I believe the Lord woke me up one night out of a deep sleep with one passage burning in my heart, the words of Jesus when He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And what I realized was, I didn't love Him. I knew Him. I had trusted Him with my soul. I had loved Him in the past, but in this personal relationship where, according to His great design, He gives me a vote, and I can either obey or disobey, or I can trust or not trust, and I can keep the external show going and be inside just as hypocritical and pagan as lost as any one of my friends, to whom, by the way, I never spoke of Jesus because that was a hypocrisy too far. I didn't love Him, and the way I could tell was how indifferent I was to the things that He said. I could marvel in learning and getting one more theological fact or one more little doctrinal tidbit, but it made no difference in the way I lived, in the way I chose, in the way I treated people, in the way I looked at girls. It made a difference in not one single important respect. There was only indifference. And that's one of the, create, that's one of the reactions that Jesus still gets today. If you're part of this church family, let me be really, really clear. My heart's hope and prayer, and one of the reasons I've re-engaged discipleship, not as a discipler alone, but also one day a week as a learner, I want every single person who really is following Jesus at Crosspoint to move past indifference. To wake up in the morning with the realization that we're dealing with life as it is from God's point of view, and He has definite plans and desires for us. And we wake up checking with Him first and having a living encounter with Him in His Word, because that's the point of the Word. See, Jesus confronted some of these experts in the law in John chapter 5, and He said to them this, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that give witness about me, and you will not come to me. That's the personal dimension. You can be an expert in this book and miss Jesus altogether unless you're moved from hostility through indifference to actual love and obedience. And the only instance I see of worship, of taking up the yoke, of humbling themselves in His presence comes from these wise men. Look in verse 7. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, five miles away, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. And he won't. I won't read it to you, but if you read, if you continue to read in the Gospel of Matthew, what you'll discover is that God warns Joseph against this plot against his young family. The wise men quietly go home without checking back in with Herod when he finds himself tricked. He creates slaughter in that little town and kills every baby boy under the age of two. That's how hostile Herod was. His scribes who had told him where to find Jesus, they weren't hostile, they were merely indifferent. The wise men, they were something else. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, notice there's no manger. A lot of time has passed. Joseph has taken a house in which to protect his young family. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary as mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Now let's talk a little bit. How many wise men? We have absolutely no idea. Doesn't tell us how many there were, does it? Where do we, wherever, you all said, many of you said, three. Wherever did we get that idea? Three gifts, three men. Not necessarily. Who were these people? They were the most surprising people that could have shown up at this little house, Bethlehem. Their figure is really hard for us to understand, but they combined, apparently, based on our best, because Matthew doesn't tell us explicitly who they are. He says merely that they've come from the east. They were likely Persian. And in one figure, they combined astronomy, what you and I would call astrology, a priestly role, and they were people probably because of all of that, sometimes genuine and sometimes supposed mystical knowledge, they also had some political traction in their world. Whoever they were, they were men of importance. And I think God personally accommodated to one of the ancient world traditions that when a person of great importance was born, something would appear in the sky to herald his arrival. And he's obviously given them at least some understanding, perhaps through the Hebrew Scriptures that they had been exposed to in their culture long, long ago. I can't prove that, but it's a reasonable conjecture. However, they've whoever they are and however many they are, they've come to do one single thing. They've come at great expense and doubtless over those many miles at great danger to do one single thing, to bow down in the presence of an infant and worship. They even brought gifts. That's why traditionally people have believed there are three. They brought gold. I think Joseph will need that gold soon when he runs with his family to Egypt. Gold is the standard today, even today, of wealth. People who manage money, 
pay attention to a lot of things, but the price of gold is never far from their sight. Then and now it's the standard of wealth and one of the hallmarks of royalty. They brought incense too. When that was opened and presented to a Jesus who is doubtless too young to understand all that was going on and his wide-eyed mother sees first gold and then smells incense, she would have been reminded of the worship at the temple. You can read in the Law of Moses and see how often these offerings include incense. This was the very aroma of worship, of being in the presence of God. The last one, strange name. Did you see what it's called? Myrrh. That's also the product of a tree. Also has value, has a lot of uses in the ancient world. But perhaps depending on how Mary's young life had unfolded, made her wince a little bit because the primary use for myrrh in her world was to embalm a dead body. Did the wise men know all this? I don't think so. But I've got a pretty good idea that Matthew wants his readers who have lived through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus to see that even in his infancy, even through unwitting participants, the wise men are doing more than they know. They're in the presence of a king with the smell of the worship of God all around them and the slight bitter taste of myrrh, which was doubtless used decades later to embalm, was intended to be used to embalm the body of our Lord. What's going on here? Worship. At the very, very end of his gospel, Matthew will say that Jesus told us disciples to go make disciples of all nations. Worship is occurring because Jesus really is the Savior that God had promised. He is the one who fulfilled what Matthew said in the first chapter. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, literally Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew explains, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, God in a humble home in Nazareth, God in borrowed living quarters, five miles from Jerusalem. Under the hostility of a king, under the indifference of religious experts, and shockingly, receiving the worship of people who lived far from his land, who spoke another language, but that had come seeking the king of the Jews. Jesus always creates these reactions. The real question is, what is yours going to be? If you truly Listen for the voice of Jesus if you truly intend to be His disciple. You may oscillate between genuine worship and indifference. You may be new to this idea of the Christian faith and just learning about Jesus. What Jesus wants to do first is move you past the hostility of His kingship so to convince you that you cannot and will not run your own life and save yourself. My invitation to you is to do exactly as Jesus said, to come to Him and find rest, to repent of hostility, to repent equally of indifference, and to come worship Him. Can we pray together?
Can I talk to you personally about your relationship with Jesus? See, He's not a concept. He's not an idea. He's not a cultural meme that does the world good. He's much more than that. He's a living, actual person. He is God Himself, God with us, who chose to live among us, to live in our place. That's the good news of the Bible, Jesus in your place, so that you could have God instead of your sin, so that you could have God Himself instead of wondering and wandering through life, calling your own shots and always being eventually disappointed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't taken on His yoke and come to Him to find rest, to find liberty from your own religious ideas or the religiosity that maybe you were raised with, which was a bunch of rule-keeping in the hopes that someday it would be enough, my invitation to you in the words of Jesus, come to Him and find rest. Find rest, find salvation, find liberty for your soul in obedience, in discipleship to Jesus. Nobody matters more in this room than those of you who are right on the edge of trusting Him and have not yet done so. My invitation to you specifically and personally is to turn away from your own understanding, turn away from calling your own shots, and call Him Lord. Say, Lord, I'm here as your apprentice. I'm here as your learner. Save me. Forgive my indifference. Forgive my hostility. Forgive my sin and save me. And He will. You don't even need the right words. He understands the movement of your heart and your mind. It's not a ritual. There's no words to magically make God do what He said He would. What there is is a simple trusting in Him, of coming to Him and saying, I can't do it myself. I can't save myself. You're the Savior. You save me. And He will. The larger group in this room, I'm sure, or fellow disciples, people who have been following Jesus for a long time or maybe a little while, and you can see yourself in this story oscillating between genuine love and indifference and coldness. Could you talk to him about that? Could you tell him you're sorry and ask him to give you not only a desire but a commitment to take the yoke up and learn from him and listen for his voice and then the courage and the faith to do what he says? God, help us, spare us, be merciful to us, to be indifferent to His voice, which is so easily read and proclaimed and so seldom listened to and obeyed. Jesus, you're, you're real. I don't know how you possibly could address hundreds of people at the same time on a Sunday. But I pray that you would, by your grace, that you would speak to disciples and move their hearts toward love and genuine trust. And for those who are still indifferent and still not trusting you, God, would you pull them across the line of faith and make them, Lord, by your grace and love, make them trust you now as Savior so that they would know for sure that the Christmas story is real to them, that you are God with not only us as humanity, you are God with them personally. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.